Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I could say very easily that Daryl has become a friend and someone who I will be connected with for a long time after um, one meeting. And I think you'll really enjoy him. And I've told him that you're going to ask some great questions. So please don't disappoint me. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Listen, I had the great pleasure of spending some quality time with David. And I have to tell you, I, I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who's as passionate, who has committed in the world of academia as David. And when he planted the seed about this series, I said, you know, sign me up. So, David, thank you very much for what you do for this campus. Your passion, your commitment is uh, evident, and I'm just really happy to be part of this whole series. So, once again, thank you very much. All right. You guys ready to get started? Um, when I was a kid, um, I would go to church with my, uh, my dad, and I would sit in the audience, and the minister at my church would take off his watch, and he'd look at it and look at the clock, and he would set it down, and I would say, well, well Dad, what does that mean? And he said, son, absolutely nothing. He's going to talk all he wants. So, so I'm committed to about 45 minutes a day, and I do want to hear from you. I will tell you this topic, managing in an ever-changing economy, can cover so many different topics. But I want to slant today's topics on a couple of things. Uh, management, obviously creativity. So I'm going to read from some notes and some comments. I travel all over the country, but I have some things that are really poignant. So in today's ever-fluctuating world, it's not enough to recognize that we and the way we do business uh, needs to change. We as leaders know how to make changes quickly, effectively, economically, and with as little political fallout as possible, or we are bound to fail. We must focus on how and when to change, not what to just what to change, but uh, look at what is happening to organizations like Blockbuster, Hollywood Video. You know, you take about what's happening to those and the real estate issues that they have to be faced with. There's such a collapse now of the information float with technology that in banking today, we have to look at things and do things a little bit different. So when I was asked to do this and talk about various topics, um, when I started uh, 37 years ago, I said, let me go back a few years and talk about the transition that banking has gone through. When I started in banking 37 years ago, the hours were 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock. How many of you here remember that? No. <laughs> yeah, I've got two down here at the front. There were no computers. It was really a fascinating time. The branches probably had about 30, 40 employees in the branch. That has drastically changed. And so today, it's changed. So if I ask the question, how many of you has, have ever handled a bank transaction in a traditional branch? Almost 100%. How many of you have handled a transaction at an ATM? How about online banking? How about bill pay? Now, how many of you want to be limited to just one of those channels? Nobody. Banking has changed that we have to make different decisions, and that requires a great deal of ingenuity and creativity. It's like the birth of in-store. Years ago, the bank, Wells Fargo, who I represented for a lot of years, a lot of us sat around about, I think it was back in the 80s, to talk about how we can maintain a certain degree of profitability. And we realized at that time that the cost of real estate was going to an incredible level. 
So someone came with the idea, well, maybe we can take branch banking or banking to a destination that generates people. And, of course, that was supermarkets. Therein lies the birth of in-store banking. Then, of course, other banks start to follow. Why? Because of convenience and all those kinds of things that made all the difference. So let me just talk about the kinds of things that the banking industry really thinks about. And, by the way, it impacts almost any organization whether it be a student organization, obviously, uh, banking industry, or any organization. Here are some of the things that I deal with, my colleagues in the industry deal with every single day. Identify opportunities to change the status quo. Thank goodness, you know, we have technology today and digital banking. I'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, the status quo, from my perspective, is the enemy of progress. Identify the issues driving today's strategic thinking. Many of you don't realize that legislation can impact the way we do business. There's legislation on the Hill right now that we have to think differently about. For example, how many of you use a debit card? How many of you want to go back to writing a check? There's legislation today that basically is trying to get banks, you know, to sort of limit the fees and revenue that's being generated by debit card usage. And so I'm in D.C. quite often dealing with what you call the Dodd-Frank uh, Dodd Amendment and the Durbin Bill and all those kinds of things to make sure that our legislators understand that you have just voted with the vehicle that you choose to do your banking. Today I'm 100% virtual. You know, I'm iPad user, iPad, iPod. You know, I'm the new version of Mac Daddy. I have everything Mac. You know, years ago I didn't even know what that was. I'm still learning how to tweet, twit. I'm not sure what the right, how many of you twit or tweet? Okay. Facebook. Okay. Those are things that in today's environment, if we aren't on the forefront of that, we're going to miss the opportunity. So we have a board of directors. Most corporations do. As uh, David indicated, we're the nation's sixth largest bank. We have two boards, however. We have a board with a lot of us older folks, legacy. We're smart enough now to have a secondary board that consists of individuals that are 28 and younger. Because we can't miss the opportunity to get your voice in terms of the kinds of things that we do in the marketplace. Other things that we have to deal with. Envision the future of an organization. Create standards of excellence for others to follow. Foster collaboration and build spirited teams. Years ago, there was a decisioning process that was somewhat hierarchical. The voice of the employees didn't exist. That has changed today. We would miss the opportunity to improve quality decisioning as it relates to the kinds of things we have to do today. So the voice of our employees, the voice of our customer, the voice of our communities, and understanding all of the issues that take place today, you know, our decisions would, would be, be rendered mute if it wasn't based on the feedback that we get. So that voice is going to be very, uh, very critical. Uh, practice sound governance. I'm going to show a slide later that really talks about the challenges that the industry has been faced with. Many of you probably know about that. Obviously, we have to be strategic about managing the balance sheet, you know, and the P&L. For example, there are some things that's taking place in banking that you don't see, which is why I'm excited about this topic, about creativity, because we have to be creative. Um, for example, if you look at banks today, we used to handle a lot of transactions, a lot of people coming to our branches. They're not coming in as much anymore. Why is that? You already voted. You indicated earlier that you use your ATMs, use debit cards, you know, use online banking. So customers are, for the most part, moving outside of the branch. Is that a variable that we should consider in how we think about real estate? Is that a variable that we should consider 
in terms of how we market to customers? Because today, we have to understand how to communicate our brand and what it represents through vehicles outside the basic commercial, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Twitter. We're trying to figure all those kinds of things out. Today, we look at uh, finding ways to win the war on talent. I can tell you today that how we look at talent is so much different than we did when I started in banking. I interviewed an individual for a branch manager position. He came in with a resume that was impressive. What was really interesting about this resume, you look at it, he had done everything, 20 years. Then I interviewed him. And in the interview process, I was there with my HR person. I realized that he really didn't have 20 years experience. He had one year experience just doing it 19 times. So when you think about how people define years of experience versus value, there's a different connection today. I will tell you that today when I interview an individual, I look at things differently. There are people that work two years in the industry, but in those two years, they bring so much value to the job that they have versus someone that's worked a long period of time. It's not the number of hours that you work. It's the value that you bring in each hour. That's how the things we're beginning to look at as it relates to labor management and how we make decisions on who we hire. I want to go back a little bit to the birth of creativity. When I was asked to do this talk, I said, you know, what really sparks the level of creativity? How many of you remember the days we were in kindergarten? I remember 20 good friends of mine. We're still good friends to this day. And here are some of the things that I think about. What were the first four things we learned back in school? What was from the first things? Alphabet, numbers, colors, and social skills. And I have to tell you, when I look at this slide, I remember my mom, she said to me once, she says, son, never forget the power, the 26 most powerful symbols. What was she talking about? The alphabet. She said, you can take those symbols and you can reposition them, you can extract and create a masterpiece. The birth of creativity for this kid that was about six years old. So today I have a fascination with words. Numbers. Obviously, I'm in banking. You know, I've always been gifted in math and finance and accounting. That's just been my thing. Colors. I'm going to talk about colors in just a moment. As a kid, I learned a lot about color theory. And you don't understand how this is applicable to the day's environment, trust me. So what are the three primary colors? You have red, you have blue, and you have yellow. And my kindergarten teacher, Miss Lamberg, I'll never forget her, she asked us to mix these colors. And I mixed red with blue and created purple. In fact, uh, purple might be one of my favorite colors. My favorite movie might be the color, uh, color purple. You know, uh, that's one of my favorite music. What's the Prince movie? Purple Rain. Purple Rain. You know, all those kinds of things. But back in those days, I started to spend some time and understand how do these learnings then? I call it the kaleidoscope effect. As a kid, I remember one of my favorite toys was the kaleidoscope. You can look through it. You can just make a slight adjustment. And all of a sudden, your outcome becomes different. Today, we blend a lot of ideas, the feedback of our employees, our customers, to come out with a different outcome, a different decision, a different idea. And that plays a lot in developing the kinds of things and influencing the decisions that we have to make. Our social skills, working together as a team is very important. You guys know these folks. When I was, um, when I was working with um, some of the key leaders around the country, 
I wanted to sort of spend a lot of work on time and leadership. And I remember that when I looked at this list of folks, I was wondering what it is they did that was different. Bear with me one moment. I lost my spot here. Some of these notes I came. George Washington. Imagine Washington deciding not to try because it looked bad across the Delaware. Imagine Lincoln giving up because he was embarrassed as a soldier and failed as a businessman or soundly defeated at the polls by his peers. Imagine John F. Kennedy deciding not to go to the moon, which would put America first, both in the eyes of this country as well as the rest of the world. And imagine, if you will, a world without the contributions of these individuals and other great men and women who overcame adversity with talent, desire, and total determination to leave behind a world slightly better than they found it. They possess the gift of creativity and innovation. And that's what makes them different. And I know some of those talents exist in this room. I saw it today. I was at the recital hall. Kids today, for example, do something different. This was held up to a group of kindergarten kids and adults. So the question is, what do you see? What is this? A piece of paper. What else? Blank page. Square. All those kinds of things that are obvious to us. But you know what kids saw? One kid said, this is a polar bear sleeping in the snow. Another kid said, this is a cloud. You get to a point where we start to limit ourselves in terms of how we think, and we lose a certain level of creativity. So we've got to think outside of the box. And um, I need three volunteers to come up. I want to prove a point here. Can I get three volunteers? Uh, I'm I'm Daryl Brown. What's your name? Chris. Hey, Chris. Let's give Chris a big hand. Okay. All right. Hi. How are you? What's your name? Marion. Marion. Let's give Marion a hand. Adrian. All right. Adrian. Okay. Elbows to your side, palms up, thumbs in. Okay? Here's your task, is to get your palm to face, to, the, to face the ground. Okay? Go ahead and do it. Okay, great. Let's do it again. Here's your obstacle. You've got to do that, but you can't turn your wrists. You've got to be able to do this, but you can't turn your wrists. Okay, you've got to stay in front. Elbows by the side. You can't lose, elbows by the side. You can't lose your elbow from your side. Stay like this. And your task is to get to do this without moving your elbow, and to get it to turn upside down. Yeah, I was going to <laughs> Does that work? <laughs> nope, your elbow's away. No, no it's, not, it's not facing down the ground. You got to just, just like this. Wait, you have to have it facing... Facing, you got to face the ground, just like this, without turning your wrist. Okay, that's one way to do it. Okay, no, no, okay, get up. Let me show you something. Come on, okay. She's very creative. See what happened? It was very easy initially. But in corporate America, we have to be faced with a lot of obstacles. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in different directions when you're faced with a challenge. Come up. Okay, you're moving in a different direction. Come down, point to your left. Come back to where you started. Always you're going to go wherever you start from. You're going to reassess things. You can see that already have a different position. Come up again. Come down. And come across. You got it? What we're trying to prove here, folks, is that when you're faced with an obstacle, whether it be in class or whether it be in corporate America, you can overcome it if you move outside of the box. Let's give them a big hand. Okay, thank you very much. I always do that exercise to prove that when we're faced with challenges, as these folks have been faced with, 
you can do a lot of different things. Thank God we have uh, Mark Zuckerberg. How many of you on Facebook? A lot of you. Steve Jobs. I'm fascinated with Apple and all those things that really made a difference today, the speed in which we move communication. As I read and ponder and speculate upon people, their deeds and their destiny, I become more deeply convinced that it's our natural destiny to grow, to succeed, to prosper, to find happiness, and to do something that was never done before. These folks also overcame the disease of doubt, fear, procrastination, and complacency. I was so good at procrastination, I was going to teach a class on it. But I decided to put it off. Okay, all right, thank you. I know you're here. For them, um, even adversity was also a worthy purpose. Because sometimes the best things that we learn is from a moment of adversity. Whatever powers behind our existence did not intend for us to fail or wallow in our poverty, self-pity, or mediocrity in any form. We are blessed with raw materials necessary for progress, such as imagination, ideas, inspiration, and undeveloped intellectual capacity. And that capacity is without limitation. To perform their best in today's turbulent atmosphere, leaders must possess the highly unusual set of three traits. Realistic optimism. Confidence without self-delusion or rationality. Subservience to purpose. Pursue a professional goal in order to feel a purpose for living. Finding order in chaos. Multi-dimensional problems are invigorating. So today we're faced with leaders that have to embrace this as a key trait. So our decisions are going to be a lot different. Leaders with this trait possess confidence without self-delusion, as I stated. In my work assessing candidates for various jobs and positions um, is really important. So who's at the table? Who's in the offices? Who are they? Today we can objectively determine the individuals and the skill set that they bring to the job. There's something called strength finders. It's a way that we can assess those that are relators, those that are strategic, those that are um, um, focused you know, on competition. So people that are at the table today in a platform of leadership bring a certain different dynamic that will hinder or improve our decision quality. So for example, I had a number of people that worked for me years ago, and we went through a personality assessment to sort of determine who was at the table. And in doing so, what was really interesting is that I had a lot of people that were primary relators, people that love people, but they weren't strategic. So what about my decision quality when you're looking to acquire a bank and I handled the mergers and acquisitions for a big part of California? It was poor. I see my friend down here going through the hand exercise. Kind of interesting, huh? But uh, thank you for that. But what's really exciting is that when you're looking at the talent in this room, you guys are a talented group of folks, but you also are unique. But there's a process that we leverage in the corporate America to really better understand really what you bring to the process. And that's something that corporate America is doing. We think it's very creative to sort of have discussions about what kind of talent we want servicing our customers. I'm, I'm going to get through. The, the exercise that I went through required a little bit of imagination. You know, we had one person get on the floor. We had a person bend over. It's no different in a corporate America that we have to think outside of the box. We have to do that in just about everything that we do. I will tell you today that uh, we focus on things like labor management. Because of technology, things are changing. 
So what kinds of things will we do if we recognize that, that folks are more remote in how they choose banking? Now we're looking at an opportunity now to be more efficient. So what are the things we do? We might shrink our hours. You're going to look at real estate a little bit different. We might consolidate branches. You know, most of you are going to remote banking, as I stated. Years from now, what's it going to look like? We have technology now in terms of identification. We can digitize your face. This technology is unbelievable. You can walk up to an ATM machine and they know exactly, you know, who you are. You know, welcome back, Mr. Jones. We know those, that technology exists. We know your spending habits. We know how many people almost are in your homes, not by the house, but at least on the block. We can pretty much know a lot. We call it predictive modeling. We have variables today that are fascinating. We know your uniqueness, kind of like iTunes, your genius. You know, you guys, you know what I'm talking about, genius and iTunes? You know, I buy music, and all of a sudden, they send me all these notes, you know, about if I buy one song, they say, hey, complete your album. It's fascinating to me that they know what I'm going to buy, what books I buy. The same thing in banking. So now in the day's environment, we have to really think outside the box and be really creative. How do we leverage this information? To what extent is this going to impact, you know, our customers? If customers don't come into our branches, how do we market to our customers? So we have to be imaginative. We've got to adapt. We have to have courage. We have to have a high degree of coaching and perception and insights. Seeing with the eyes or seeing with the mind. And today we have to see with the mind, sight and insight. And that's what's driving, you know, today's management and the creativity that you see today. Um, I acquired banks, and I have to tell you, I was talking to David earlier, and he wanted to get some insight on what are some of the things that we do. So I acquired four banks in the last couple of years. It's a very difficult job, a lot of work. And uh, when you have four different cultures coming under one umbrella, people moving in different directions. We can talk about empowering our employees, but they really didn't have a clear vision. The products were different, so we had to do product mapping. Requires a lot of information, the communication strategies, the marketing to the customers, understanding what segment the customer went into. What are the lifestyle segments that we have to take into consideration? The student, the renter, the homeowner, the retiree, the investor. All of these are lifestyle platforms that we take into consideration. So when you have 3,000 employees going in different directions, what are the things that we have to do with any organization to make sure that there's uniformity and direction, unity and direction. Today, I like to say at U.S. Bank, this is where we are. We finished our last acquisition about a year ago. So when I talk to the FDIC and I talk to the feds, they come back into my office to find out how we can integrate different ideas and concepts. It's because, quite frankly, we take the corporate pyramid and we turn it upside down and get voice from the team to find out what's really important to them. It's called some of the soft measures, employee engagement, to make sure that we have uniformity moving in the same direction with a clear vision. It's what happened between General Motors and Toyota. General Motors, when I was a kid, was iconic, and still is in many ways. General Motors was one of the, the biggest in the world, one of the biggest in the world. And slowly but surely, Toyota started to, you know, just take more market share, drive more revenue. So all the scholars got together to figure out, what is it that Toyota's doing? They have the same equipment. They have the same plants. They did all this analysis. So they finally got together. And I remember reading a book, um, The Theory Z and The Art of Japanese Management and Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence. All this study was going on. But there was a contingent that went there. 
And I will tell you, back then, it was more of an assembly line mentality. Henry Ford, General Motors, had more of a dictatorial, autocratic kind of a management style. Don't think, just do. Just put the screws in the same way all the time. Didn't quite work. So what they found at Toyota was very interesting. They went on the plan and they noticed something. That the employees had a say in what would take place. The employees had a say in the changes. So for example, if they had the same sort of computers and systems, these big arms coming down, they took into consideration the different heights of the assembly lines. Those that were taller, those that were shorter. Time and motion studies. People could be more efficient. What a creative, novel sort of perspective to gain the voice of the employees that would change the efficiencies for Toyota. And today, slowly but surely, voice of the team, voice of the employees. So your voice is critical in today's environment. Your voice today in terms of your studies or any group organizations or those of you that are here on campus, you know, as deans, you know, a collaborative approach is something that's going to make all the difference in the world. That voice is going to be powerful. And that's going to continue. In fact, it's one of the things that we take into consideration in the things that I do with my team. I make sure that everybody has a voice. In fact, I'm doing a survey with my employees. In fact, the whole company is. One of the things that we've done, one of the creative things, exciting things we've done, is that we hired a consultant firm, and we have 65,000 employees. And we survey the employees. And there's 100% confidentiality to make sure that we understand what is important to them. The average response rate for any corporation that does this type of a survey, what do you think it is? 30%? Go higher. 50% is the average response rate. At U.S. Bank, 64,000 employees, their response rate is north of 85%. Unheard of. So people trying to figure out what it is we do different. In my region, in Southern California, it's 94% of my employees respond to the survey. And I'm very proud of that number. Because that means we've had to work hard to create an atmosphere of trust and create something that I'm very proud of. Let me just get to that slide. Here's a model. The earlier paradigm was this. To the left, and then, of course, how we sort of approach it today. Being a manager or being a leader. Being a boss or being a coach, a facilitator. They have a dialogue. You know, there's a difference between teaching and helping somebody learn. They look the same. There's a difference between selling a product and helping somebody buy. So if I was a teacher, then I would stand up here and just talk. But for me to get confirmation that what I'm talking about is being received in the manner in which I intend it. That means I have to master the art of asking questions to make sure I hear your voice, to make sure that I understand that we're on the same page and that we're moving in the right direction. That's what a good coach and good leaders will do. Old paradigm, controlling people. I remember those days versus empowering people. As students, you are so empowered. Centralizing authority, distributing leadership, micromanaging goal setting versus aligning with our vision and our strategy. Directing with rules and regulations versus guiding with shared values and culture. Establishing position power in a hierarchy versus building relationships. Demanding compliance, gaining commitment. You can see where I'm going that on the right side is what great companies are beginning to incorporate. 
To simplify, and hope you guys can see that. I hope you guys see that okay. This is what I call the, seven, the 7S model. You have strategy, structure, systems. These are some of the hard, objective things that most companies would take under consideration. But if you look at skills, you look at staff, you look at style and shared value and culture, for the most part, those are some of the softer measures. Great companies do all of these things. But truly, truly phenomenal companies master shared values, skills, staff, and style. These are the ones that make the difference, and here's why. Those that focus on sales, budget, profits, you know, get your sales numbers, you know, without teaching them how to do it. Technology expenses, information, planning, reporting, organizational structure. Today, there's personal accountability. There's customer service, morale, teamwork, learning and development, openness, mutual trust. So we can analyze things. Those on the left that focus on sales, there are those that say, you didn't hit your numbers. I'm sorry, you got to go. Today, we do things different. So if you have a goal of 10, you have 10 calls to make, and you have one sell, you have a 10 to 1 ratio. So if the goal is 10, how many people do you have to call? 100. So at that point, in today's environment, we've gotten really creative. Why is it 10 to 1? What are the contributing factors to that 10? How come it couldn't be better than that? So we started to look, is it coaching? Is it training? Is it the product? Is it the marketing? You know, is it how to overcome objections when we talk to uh, our customer? What is it going to take for us to get to 4 out of 10 or 5 out of 10? That's the side in which we're operating right now more than we ever have before. As a result of moving to the softer measures, as a result of really understanding the new paradigm, the attrition today in my region, I'm proud to say, is probably 12, 12%. And I have 2,000 employees. I don't lose a lot of employees because they're part of the solution. We do. It might be the college students that we hire. And they're there working part-time. And some of them change their careers to be part of the world of financial services. But when I look at this, and I go back to this, this slide here, what is the most important element here on this slide? Of this seven, which one is the most important? What would you guess? Shared values. Shared values and cultures. It's really important. Did you get my notes? <laughs> you know, it's really important for you to understand the culture. What's the culture of Santa Cruz? How would you describe it? Liberal. Liberal. What else? Did you, I thought I saw your this bright light. I can't see. There's somebody in the back. How would you describe the culture? Counterculture. Counterculture. Counter I heard somebody back here. Healthy. Healthy. Wholesome. Bright. Everybody on this campus smiles. You know, I got a chance, as I said, to visit some students, you know, in the world music department. And they were working together as a team. I watched someone with a big opera is coming up this, this weekend. And I was there at this beautiful facility. I met the artistic director and watched the music director at work. You can see the unity. Everybody knows everybody. It makes this campus very special. You know, I went to UCLA. You know, I travel all over the country. Santa Cruz has a very good brand. Because brand equity starts with you. It starts with what we see. And that's the same thing that manifests in corporate America. I want to go back to a slide that I 
was purple that flies are out of order here, but I want to go back to some that we're faced with. Talk about the industry. What recession? This is what's happening in the banking industry. You guys have read the news. Takeovers by the FDIC. That's continuing. About 800 banks out there are still doomed to fail. States may sue banks for fraud over mortgage crisis. Bleak milestone. Bank fares this year surpass 100. Large banks still not lending to small businesses. This is what we're faced with every single day. When I walk the halls of D.C., when I assess how decisions are being made, and I happen to have the great pleasure of interacting with a lot of senators and those in the House, and each senator has a different culture. Some of their interns, some of their attorneys are phenomenal, unbelievable. They really want to understand the issues, and they want to understand our perspective. You have lobbyists on both sides, from the retail bank side, and you have those, you know, in the, in retail, bank, in retail stores, you know, kind of battling to sort of influence those, uh, those uh, senators and our legislators. But we've got a lot of work to do, you know, in our economy to make a difference. And it's going to take those banks that really step outside the status quo to make a difference. So here's what I want to do. I want to hear from you. Um, when I was giving this task of talking to uh, this group about uh, managing and creativity, I want to basically get a perspective of what, what you guys are interested and what kind of questions you might have. I know some of you have that. So let me open it up to some questions. Any questions around management, leadership, creativity, ingenuity as it relates to the banking industry? So questions at the mic. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. This doesn't relate directly to banking per se, but I was wondering how an employee who has just entered a new business at the very bottom level could go about approaching higher level uh, management about innovative ideas and uh, moving the company forward and making adjustments and stuff. Good, good, good question. I, I've often said that asking is the beginning of receiving. You, you, you don't get a lot of perspective if you don't ask. Do your homework on the leadership, understand who um, sits in the organizational structure. You know, I sit at a pretty high level in the company, but I have somewhat of an open door. You know, and I say somewhat because, you know, obviously uh, my door would be open a lot and uh, a lot of folks come in, and they do. But the feedback that I get from the employees, and most of my employees, we set aside time. I'm fascinated by the student that actually writes me a note and says, you know, Mr. Brown, I'm an economics uh, student, and I have no idea about my career pathing. I'd like to spend some time with you. We'll make sure that we calendar. So today... We block aside time just for students. We also have something called Mentor Connect that they can leverage, meaning that people around the company can identify a senior leader, and we will set aside time to make sure that we connect with that individual so we can better understand their career pathing. So if they have a skill set, a competency, a talent, or a desire that's different from retail banking and they want to be international banking, we can provide a perspective, you know, that would help them navigate that. And we set aside time to, to sort of make that happen. We also want to make sure that these individuals understand that banking is not just branch banking. You know, because there's a lot of talent in here. You know, who does our collateral material? Who does our marketing material? You know, those visuals. So that means we have to make sure that those that ask the question, that have that gift, we're going to connect them with the leadership in the marketing group or public relations 
because all those careers exist in a lot of organizations as they do here on campus. But I think it's really important you know, to make sure that ask, do your homework, you know, make sure that you identify those that have the skill set and the, hopefully the willingness to give you the time because you guys are going to be our future. Hope that answers the question. It, it does. Thank you very much. Just one clarification. Uh, seek the people who have the skill set and hopefully the willingness. What do you mean by skill set in this context? Um, skill set. Everybody has a different skill. You know, um, some people can pay the, play the piano. Some people can type real fast. And it's different skills. And uh, some people are really good at, at uh, math. Some people are really good at creative arts. Some people are good. Different people have different skills. So we want to make sure that we understand what those skills are and what the passions are and how that might migrate to a job that's consistent with or aligned with those skills. You know, um, talent, for example, we have a lot of talented folks. Michael Jordan is a talent, was a talent. But I've never been able to teach height. And, um, you, know, you know, but he's a great basketball player. Everybody can't do that. So it's really important you understand, you know, skills and talents and competencies as part of our discussion to make sure that we have people moving in, in the right jobs and the right strategic fit for those jobs. Okay, great. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. I think the pre-planning is, is really important to make sure that you, you prepare the questions ahead of time. You know, it's, uh, you know, these guys are really busy. But I think for the most part, we know the importance of making sure we've created an annuity stream of talent. So being prepared, the pre-planning. Some folks just call, and, and without really thinking through the question, I think that's a really good point. Great question. Hi. Um, throughout this class, risk and failure have been a common theme that we've dealt with. Hmm. And uh, dealing with any kind of business risk is something you have to consider, risk for, uh, for reward. I wonder if you talk a little bit about how you think risk and failure relate to innovation and creativity? I think it's, uh, I think it's important. I think, you know, I think about Thomas Jefferson uh, um, um, or, um, or many of our great leaders across the world probably failed in their decisioning 10,000 times. Thomas Edison, 10,000 times before you got the light bulb. I call it failing forward. I think, you know, out of every adversity, every challenge, every crisis, you know, is, you know, the birthplace of creativity. I think so you have to feel comfortable with failure. It's, it's, it's not over. You know, it's just a moment in time. So I think in today's environment, you know, I think about uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and, and the guys over at Google, and I think about how they started. You know, they sort of stumbled upon things by accident. You know, it's not like they woke up and said, hey, we're going to create all this stuff. They had ideas and concept. It was a process. So I think, you know, for most students today, you know, it's okay to fail. I've made every mistake in the book, you know, to get to the job that I have today. You know, it's not because it was a light switch and I just woke up and did it. No. You know, you have to understand how the process works and, and feel comfortable in, in failing. It's okay. You know, and uh, I encourage folks to feel comfortable. That's why I call it failing forward. You know, some people fail and think life is over. They go in the corner, ball up, and life is over. Nah, that's not the way it really works. You know, feel comfortable making that happen. And that's where the new ideas and ideas. I think about musicians and how they just play and practice notes and chords. And, and next thing you know, they create a masterpiece. And they've got the number of books and drafts that they write to finally get to something. So I think it's a, it's a journey, you know, to get to that special place of creativity. So the slide that I showed about uh, with um, uh, Steve Jobs and what he's done with Microsoft, remember what happened to Apple years ago? They were done, over with. You know, Bill Gates was the king. You know, everybody has an iPad, iPod, iPhone or something. You know, it's fascinating to me to see how that's uh, grown. And he felt quite a bit to get to the point he is today. So I encourage it. And it's hopefully you're around leadership that values that, you know, because that's the seeds in which you're going to get the ingenuity that's needed for us to build a better future. 
Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, I was wondering um, if you have any thoughts on um, uh, in, in what ways m might the financial sector function differently if um, all of the management, not just the board of directors, uh, were to be elected democratically by um, shareholders and employees? Hmm. Um, it's, it's really interesting because I'm not sure um, in the day's decisioning process, you know, I would want to segment this group from this group. I want everybody at the table, I think, when we make the decisions. Um, I think about the decisions that we go into to make and acquire a bank. We have a lot of folks that know it's the wrong thing to do. Nope, this is a commercial bank. The receiver will turn around uh, time around in, in that sector is lengthening. The inventories and the manufacturing side of it, the, the shelf life is a lot longer. You know, the ratio analysis doesn't fit. Nope, we don't want to do it. You know, we spend a lot of time today to make sure that we have all the key players at the table, that that voice is being heard. Now, the weight we would put on the decision might change, and that's because of the dialogue and the collaboration that takes place. When we sit at the table to make a decision, you know, it's an opinion, and opinions are great conversation starters. But at the end of the day, we can't make a decision on an opinion. So at the end of the day, the hierarchy, the leadership, in our case, it might be our CEO, the vice chair of the company, will allow us to sort of vent and share ideas and concepts, and finally he might make the ultimate decision. And I may go back to him to say, what contributed to that decision? Where did you put the weight of that decision? It might be because of the customer dynamics. It might be because of some political issues that I wasn't aware of at the time that I went into that room. But I think everybody has to be at the table to provide a perspective. Um, it's always um, an issue between what folks call the right way. I'm an advocate of a right way to do things. And I think therein lies, you know, the secret sauce where people can come together and try and formulate some unity and direction. There's no right answer. It's a right answer, you know, in the creative process as it relates to the kind of decision we have to make politically or, or, or economically. Okay, that was a very elegant sidestep. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I have a question <clears throat> relating to your international banking. I noticed that your U.S. bank, and right now in Greece, it's probably not a good idea to be a Greek bank because uh, those banks may go broke. So the question is, uh, if uh, worse comes to worse and the U.S. goes broke, does U.S. bank still survive, and what are you doing about that? Well, that's, I mean, there's a, some global dynamics. Um, there are some um, local dynamics that impact our industry. Our leadership of the company made a decision not to be involved in international banking at the level because we saw what was going on years ago. Uh, we just, as our company, we chose not to play in that, in that sector. You know, so some of the bigger Citibank, you know, where two-thirds of their uh, revenue comes from the international customer base, so they're here in the States to service international customer. We know that. J.P. Morgan Chase, that's where they play. B of A, that's where they play. You know, um, I don't work for those organizations. I can tell you what our choice was. Our choice is to be a U.S. bank to make sure that we understand the issues in this country. So um, if that uh, might speak to the earlier uh, questions about how we make decisions politically, that was a political decision because they're knocking our doors to play heavier in an international sector. There's too many unknowns there. There's too much instability. But we know this. We know this country, and we know that it's strong. And so we've made a decision to get closer to the customer. We got closer to small business. We got closer to our employees, you know, to make sure our communities, 
What are the political dynamics that's influencing banking? And so that was a, that was a choice we made. So uh, we do play in international banking on what we call payment services. So when you look at our revenue pie, you have wealth management, you have consumer banking, you have mortgage, you know, but we also have something called payment services. And that's every time you swipe your card, debit card or credit card, U.S. Bank is getting paid. And we do that overseas, and we're big overseas, and a lot of companies work through U.S. Bank because we private label it. So that was our choice. And guess what? Um, and I'm just saying that to do your homework on U.S. Bank. Right now, we're recognized as the strongest in uh, bank. We're not the biggest. You know, um, in assets, we're about $300 billion in size. And above that, I think J.P. Morgan Chase might be $2.4 trillion. But we like where we sit because, you know, we're, by design, we want to play to a market sector that will allow us to continue to grow and bring value to the domestic customer base. Is that fair? Great. Hi, my name is Armand, and I was wondering, like, what do you think is the top most paid major, like, in a world like today? Uh, repeat your question. I didn't hear you quite well. Um, what do you think is the top most paid major in, like, a world today, like, the economy we're in and, like... You mean a college major? Yeah, a college yeah. major, like, the top most paid major. Um, gosh, um, the top paid, it probably would be, uh, gosh, um, you know, just, in, I mean, just in general? Just in general. Like, in your experience... And like the people you well, entrepreneurs see. clearly, you know, yeah. I mean, clearly do, do very well. But, you know, for a job, you know, I would say plastic surgeons probably do quite well. Yeah. Um, that, that, without question, is probably the highest paid from what I've seen as a banker. But it runs a gamut. You know, when I look at the, the um, relationship of portfolio mix of a customer and how they earn income, you know, um, um, you get the, the entrepreneurs probably do very well. Most of them, when I look at income and I also look at wealth, I mean, obviously, they, they complement each other. They have a strong real estate portfolio for the most part. Um, they're very savvy about uh, the marketplace in terms of investment strategies. Um, they manage their debt very well. Uh, they're, they're massive at repositioning liabilities and debt in a way that can sustain. They understand the concept of dollar cost averaging, meaning you invest a certain amount over time, no matter what the peaks and valleys are in the marketplace. You know, they're going to, over time, have linear growth. You know, um, um, I, I always think about behaviors that's con- con- contributed to, to wealth. You know, I also look at the, uh, the individuals where they start here with wealth, but in the economy, some of them come down. And then, of course, they come right back to where they started. That's called a V-shaped, approach, a V-shaped economy. And, but today, you're seeing it come back, where I call it a check mark, where people start here, they come down, and they, they go back up because they're massive at repositioning their dollars very carefully. A lot of liquidity right now um, in the marketplace, and uh, people aren't investing as much until they get some stabilization. You know, but, uh, but, but for the most part, um, riches and wealth and income you know, run the gamut. But doctors do very well. Attorneys do very well. Uh, people that have real estate portfolios do very well. You know, it's uh, kind of all, all over the place. You can't segment it as much. Um, you think about um, Mark's, Mark Zuckerberg. You know, and uh, the guys over at Google, you know, you've got a lot of wealth, you know, with those under 30. You know, there's more multimillionaires under 30 today than in, ever in the history. And they did a little bit different. You know, you can question how the valuations are determined. You know, but it's kind of fascinating to see. So I'm not sure if it's any one industry, but definitely plastic surgeons are, <laughs> do very well, you know. Um, in fact, I probably need one in the next couple of years. So, uh, you know, good question. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, what we'll do is um, let's we'll stop the sort of formal se- session, but you can come up and ask him some a question afterwards. So let's give our, uh, uh, Mr. Brown a round of applause. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.